0: This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I am here with Dr. Kayla Singleton, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Emory University. Thank you so much for agreeing to share your story with us.
1: Of course, thanks for having me.
0: So we like starting our interviews asking, asking you, how did you first become interested in studying the brain?
1: Yeah, so in, I got interested studying the brain in seventh grade, Um, I had this like science outreach experience that was hosted by the University of Georgia. Um, And they like came to my middle school. And we got to dissect all of these different brains like sheep brain and cow brain. Um, They even had like, mouse brains and, like, goat brains. Um, And I just thought it was really cool. I was, like, super interested in, like, the fact that that, like, squishy ball, like, made people who they were or, like, animals be the way that they were. Um, And I always like to point out that, like, I was not a science girl growing up. I was a, like, book girl. I liked to read books and listen to angsty music. Um, (laughs) And so it was really shocking to, like, all of my teachers and my parents um, when I was like, I want to study the brain. Uh, when I grow up, they were all just kind of like, okay, like, they were supportive, but they were like, okay, yeah, sure. Um,
0: Well, and it all was from that outreach experience. So it started there. That is incredible.
1: Yeah. And then um, when I was in high school, I tried to take, we had like the AP program. So like, I took AP psych, thinking that like, maybe that was the route that I wanted to go to understand the brain more. Um, And I didn't really love that. Um, And so I just always like kind of kept it in the back of my mind until I started to apply for colleges. And then I decided that I would use my interest in neuroscience um, to like pick which schools I would apply to. So I applied only to schools that had neuroscience programs, which at the time in 2010 was like, not that many schools. Um, and I ended up choosing Agnes Scott College because they had like a defined neuroscience major. They gave me financial aid um, and it wasn't that far from home. Um, and so really, it started with me being like a really stubborn twelve-year-old,
0: and <laughs> that's awesome. From there, where where was home?
1: Um, home for me is Georgia. Uh, I grew up in Grayson, Georgia, um, and now my family lives in uh, Austell, Georgia, which is not that far, like an hour away.
0: Okay, cool. And then once you were at Agnes College, which, from the name of it, it sounds like a small liberal arts college. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, Agnes Scott is yeah. a small uh, all-women's liberal arts college.
0: How did you end up deciding to get a PhD?
1: Um, so while I was in college, because I had because I knew I wanted to study neuroscience, I declare I was like one of the first people to declare my major, um, and I got to do all of these scientific outreach experiences. I earned um, different fellowships. One of them is like the NINDS, um, it's like enhancing neuroscience enhancing under endure
0: is it like indoor indoor, yeah yeah.
1: um I earned an indoor fellowship which I can never remember the name of um and through that fellowship I got to work at Georgia State in a lab um looking at crayfish I got to work at Emory University um with Dr. Gretchen Nye looking at affective disorders so like depression and anxiety and I also got to do spend a summer at Vanderbilt doing research on um cellular processes that contribute to obesity and like inflammation in the brain and so I had like I was really good at doing science and then when it came time so the bench
0: basically like you very quickly like as an undergrad shine in the bench bench
1: yeah I, I was really good at bench work um and I think there was my senior year of college, I was working in like three labs at once. Um, wow. And I was I was having a wow. great time. <laughs> I was having so much fun. And so one of my mentors was like, I think you should go to graduate school. And I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do after college. Like, I don't know why, but it hadn't come up. Um, <laughs> and
0: you were already a senior.
1: Yeah, I think it was, this was probably like the end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year. Um, and she was like, you should apply. And so I did. And I um, so it was really through like her encouragement because I loved doing science. I loved teaching people how to do science specifically, like mentoring someone at the bench. Um and uh I I applied to seven schools, got interviews at six and got into five, and I I was the most shocked of everybody, I think.
0: <laughs> that well, I'm glad that mentor encouraged you to go to apply to grad school. Yeah. And what do you end up going to grad school and what did you end up studying?
1: Yeah, so I uh, earned my PhD from Georgetown University in the interdisciplinary program in neuroscience. Um, and a lot of the work that I like excelled at in undergrad was about neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, but I had realized while I was applying to graduate school that I had never taken like a, a foundations in neurodevelopment class. Like I... That was a, an area that I really lacked in. Like, I didn't understand how the brain formed. Um, and so, when I was picking labs at Georgetown, I really wanted to get like hands on experience understanding like the foundations of how the brain is built. Like, how do you go from a zygote to like a fully functioning nervous system during gestation? And so, I joined um, two labs to begin with. Um, I was co mentored. Um, by Elena Silva and Maria Donahue. And so my project really focused on understanding how the brain developed across species by looking at highly conserved transcription factors. So I used uh, Xenopus lavis, the African claw frog, and um, mouse as another model to look at corticogenesis to see how SOX-11 um, is used in development in different species, but also at different developmental time points.
0: And why SOX-11? Um, So one of the main reasons
1: that we uh, chose SOX11 is because it's a a transcription factor that's important for development in multiple systems, but it doesn't have like a really complete picture of how it does its job. We know, um, and at the time we knew that SOX11 was really important for differentiation. So when neurons go from progenitor cell to immature neuron, but we didn't know how SOX 11 worked in really early stages of development. I see. Um, okay. Since it's expressed and like active at those stages. Um, and so it's just a highly conserved transcription factor that is kind of like ambiguous and kind of taken for granted um, in the grand schemes of development.
0: Hmm. Are there many other transcription factors with the name SOX on it, but a different yes. number? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I've, so, I've yeah. heard that a lot, but with different numbers, okay. Yeah, so there are tons
1: there. I think there are like, there's the Sox, they're the SOX family of transcription factors. They're considered architectural regulators of neural development because they, in order to turn on their downstream targets, they both bind and bend DNA um, in order to do so. And there's families like A through G, and each family has like three or four SOX transcription factors in it. Okay. And they're all grouped based on like homology of the protein sequence. So the ones that are the most similar.
0: And what did you find? What was common, if anything, between the frog and the and the mouse's brain?
1: Yeah, so we found we found a couple of things that were really cool. I think one of the main things that we found was um, that Sox11 plays this sort of context-dependent role throughout development. That depending on what cell co- Sox11 is in, so if it's in uh, an anterior neural plate cell versus a uh, a motor neuron, um, it will bind. It has like preferential binding affinity. So it will choose its partner protein to turn on downstream targets based on the sort of signals and context of the individual cell it's in. And we find that that's true across species. So for mouse and for um, frog. We also saw in the frog embryo, which is where I did most of my thesis work, um, that SOX11 plays this really like promiscuous role throughout development. So at the very beginning stages of neural development, it's associated with like gross, what is it called? Like gross anatomical development. Um, It's able to play like, it's just basically able to play like many different roles, but later during development, its function becomes more specified and it's uh, focused really on um, neural progenitor cells and the like placodal regions, which is the region of the embryo that will go on to develop your sensory organs, so your eyes, your ears, your nose. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so we were able to identify partner proteins for SOX11 in Xenopus um, and frog, which hadn't happened before. And we were able to show which domains of SOX11 are really important for partner protein binding by using deletion constructs. And so we saw that the terminus of SOX11 is really significant in that role, but the C-terminus plays more of a functional role, which had always been hypothesized, but never shown.
0: And are these protein, I'm trying to visualize all these experiments because this is super out of my comfort zone. So what I've gathered so far is that this is super early in development. You're talking about embryos, right? So you're looking at these transcription factors and where they're expressed, where anatomically they're expressed and when and what role they may be playing, both in the frog as like, I guess like a non-mammal and then like in the mouse embryo. And then you're talking about, like, protein interactions, right? Like, so then what is this transcription factor interacting with? Um, I can visualize the experiments to figure out where the transcription factor is. But how do you figure out what the transcription factor is interacting with? Is that done, like, in the dish? You know, like, you take a little bit of tissue.
1: So there are many ways that you can do it. Um, We chose, like, two... Um, like two prominent ways in order to get like the most bang for our buck um, in my time as a graduate student. Um, So the first was using like a candidate approach. So we took known Sox-11 partner proteins from other species. So in mouse, it's previously been shown that Sox-11 binds Neurogenin-1 and pal 3 f 2 also known as Brain2. And we basically used an in vitro method to see if we could get Xenopus Sox-11, that partner protein to bind um, homologs of, of those partner proteins. So we would overexpress our, sorry, we would, um, what is it? We would use in vitro translation to make like a crap ton of like purified protein.
0: Mm, so you would make a bunch of protein. Yeah, in vitro,
1: protein in vitro, combine them in a tube to see if they bind and then do like co IP assays. Another way that we've focused on doing it,
0: um, and just for people that don't know, so then co IP, and also for me to verify if okay. I'm right, in the co IP, they're going to precipitate together when they're interacting, and then you can label it so you can yeah. visualize that how much um, protein was interacting with each other.
1: Okay. Yep, exactly. Um, and so that was one method. Another method that we started, but I wasn't around when we finished it, was using a um, mass spec. So essentially taking a frog embryo and injecting into it an overexpression of SOX-11 and then isolating, um, using like a tag to isolate SOX-11 and run that like protein lysate through a mass spectrometer to tell us all of the things that are like attached to it.
0: Cool. Wow. So you were really like I could imagine you already being like all those things sound super complex and like a bunch of bench skills you know what I mean like you gotta get those molecular skills right and like being super careful and everything so I could actually already visualize how you your skill set and uh as an undergrad translated into like more success in grad school
1: yeah it was it was definitely still hard like I I think one of grad school's a very like humbling experience. because <laughs> um, even though like I I was really good at doing science and like those other labs and I had come to this like new place and I was trying to like get my footing and kind of like prove that I belonged there. Um and there were days, there not even days, there were like whole like chunks months? of time. okay yeah, <laughs> Like months um where I felt like I had no idea what I was doing and like i was just like bad at science which i think can be really crippling um like a really crippling experience that most people go through when they enter grad school i have a, a bunch of mentees that just started grad school and um it's usually around october that they all reach out and they're like does this this sucks like does that in first back? year basically <laughs> yeah, in first year yeah their first year, like, by October, they're all
0: like, I want to quit. <laughs> 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 that <laughs> happened the, to me. That, well, yeah, it happens I do, to everybody. <laughs> I don't think I ever said I want to quit, but I was like, I was wrong. I wasn't ready for grad school yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was the feeling I got. So, yeah, so not not to misinterpret your, like, lots of previous experience with, like, it was easy to come with, yeah. um, to have some successful projects. So, in it. Yeah. I guess I, you've already told me like in on um, that what you found, but if you had to say in, in one sentence, like you know your thesis, most important contribution of your thesis, what would you say it was?
1: Um, I would say that Sox eleven works in a context dependent manner to
0: um, propagate neural development. Cool. And then um, when you were facing that choice of like what to do next after grad school. Um how do you go about deciding um wh- what to do and what type of research to do for your postdoc?
1: Yeah. Um so when I was in grad school around my fourth year, um I had applied for a bunch of fellowships um and hadn't I had earned spots on like T32s, but I didn't have my own fellowship. Um but my fourth year of graduate school NINDS INDS announced the F99K00 fellowship, which was a fellowship that would fund the last two years of your grad work and the next four years of your postdoc. And by the time I was a fourth year graduate student, I hated grad school so much. I hated science so much. And I felt like I was really bad at it. And I wasn't getting um, a lot of like mentor support. And part of that I think is because I didn't know how to ask for the support that I needed. And then part of that was just like, my PIs both became deans. So they oh, were just like, wow. not yeah, so they were like not around.
0: Basically their priorities completely shifted. Yeah.
1: Um, and so I decided that I would apply um, for that F99 K00 grant. It kind of has like my last ditch. Like if I get this grant, I'll go do a postdoc.
0: Wow. If I don't get
1: this grant, we will really have to evaluate what I am doing here. We as in like myself. Um, and so <laughs> I applied and I earned the grant and it was an awesome experience, um, especially for like the first couple of weeks um, because I was like really flabbergasted that 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 like you couldn't I believe yeah, yeah yeah I was You're like, like well now shocked. I'm doing
0: a postdoc <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think fine.
1: there was a period of time after I earned it um, that one of my mentors and I would just like kept getting into like spats about like how I was doing experiments and why I was doing them a certain way and all of these things um, that really boiled down to us like not communicating um, and she said some really like Hurtful comments or statements, basically saying that like I only got that grant because it was a diversity grant, and I only got that grant because I was black. Um,
0: Oof, it's always so difficult (laughs) to hear those types of comments.
1: Yeah, it was really hard, and it was it was hard, and it was like embarrassing because I also, on some like subconscious level, was like, what if that's true? Like, of course, like what if that's the only reason? And so, um, we eventually, she got a new job as dean somewhere else. So we like parted ways as like mentor and mentee, which was fine. Um, But as I was finishing up like my fifth year of grad school, I basically was like, I don't have the mental energy or the spoons to find a non-postdoc job because I felt like Mm -hmm. I had so much science to do in order to graduate. I knew that like the quote unquote alternative career paths existed. Like I could go work in industry or pharma or for a startup, but I just didn't have the energy in me to do it and i was like so i'll just yeah. interview for post-doc. the
0: past yeah the path of least resistance least is yeah exactly is to go into a postdoc just because everybody surrounding you knows how to do, how that, to do that and that. can yeah, tell yeah, exactly. you right
1: and so i was like i have the funding for a postdoc i'll do a postdoc and i'll be my, my big thing was that i was going to be really upfront with my postdoctoral mentor that like i'm still not sure mm-hmm. but I'm going to give it like one last try. Like I said, I would when I like originally applied to this grant. Um, And it's been pretty great so far. I, I really love being a postdoc. I love my postdoc lab.
0: That's great. So it's been like, has it like increased your love? I don't know, like rekindled your love for science that like, you know, like that you kind of lost some of adding at the end of grad school?
1: Yeah, it definitely, it definitely has done that. It's increased it's increased my love for science overall, but it also has highlighted for me, like the parts of science that I like and the parts that I want to do. And I feel like my postdoc mentor, Victor, he is really great about being transparent about what the job is as a faculty member.
0: That's um, nice. And
1: putting me in touch with like faculty members at different types of institutions and at different stages so that I can compare and contrast those. Um, and right now I feel like I'm very much in a place where I know I could be a faculty member if I wanted, but because I love physically doing science and mm. not so much, like, the paperwork and the grants and the, like, the 100 committees that faculty members <laughs> are run, it, it makes it hard sometimes for me to, like, envision myself. I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. I feel like when I started my career as a neuroscientist, I was really coming from a place of, like, can I do this? Like having to prove to myself and feeling like I had to prove to other people that like I could be a neuroscientist and I would be good at it. And now I'm approaching my like career and my future from a place of like, I can do this, but what do I want to do? Like Mm -hmm. what is going to bring me the most joy in terms of my career, in terms of the research that I do? And I think that that's a really big struggle that like gets lost in terms of all of the other struggles that you go through as a scientist.
0: Hmm. Let's put a pin on that. And before we dive into that struggle and and what potentially comes next for you, uh, especially with that particular, like, well, if you love the bench work, if yeah. you become a PI, you basically stop doing it. Um, what is your current postdoctoral project about?
1: Yeah, so my current postdoctoral research focuses on Menke's disease, which is a rare um, genetic disorder that affects uh, children predominantly, but it's caused by a dysregulation of copper in the body. Um, And so the overarching like theme of our lab is to use rare genetic diseases and neurodevelopmental disorders to understand basic biological principles. So how can we take a disorder like Menke's disease and learn more about copper biology and the importance of copper throughout development, but also the importance of copper in things like cellular homeostasis and like mitochondria integrity. And copper, I think, is another one of those um, cofactors that's in the brain. Like, I didn't know copper was important for brain development until I joined the lab.
0: I didn't know either. (laughs) Um, I don't know that.
1: Yeah, but copper is one of those things that it's like a cofactor for a lot of processes. So things mm. like um, the generation of collagen, like neurotransmitter synthesis, copper plays a role in that. It plays a role in pigmentation and mitochondria health. Um, but it's really taken for granted because it's such small concentrations of copper. And there are so many other like bigger, cooler things at play that it's role <laughs> really gets like erased. And so a big part of my project is trying to understand specifically how copper affects mitochondria integrity so mitochondria health but also how copper affects mitochondria localization and if there are ways that we can take the minky's phenotypes that we see with damaged mitochondria and rescue them by either Hmm. um agonists like drugs that increase mitochondrial mass or drugs that deliver copper to cells
0: you said the local the localization of the mitochondria so I remember learning in grad school that mitochondria move around the neuron. And that blew my mind. Like I saw this video that it went from the cytoplasm to the axon. And I was like, I've been living a lie. You know, you think about like your biology textbook and it just looks so static. So is that what you're talking about? Like copper maybe playing a role in where the mitochondria physically is in the neuron? Yeah.
1: So one of the things that we see, um, I should also mention in... In Victor's lab, I work in um, cell culture um, with cell lines. I also work in mouse and I work in Drosophila, the fruit fly. Um, but one of Is it things-
0: cortical tissue, the cell cultures? Or? Yeah, some of it is okay.
1: cortical. Some of it is like um, CRISPR engineered like, mm-hmm. cell lines. Um, but for the Drosophila work that we see, when we induce a, like a Minkie's overexpression phenotype, um, Basically, when we give the fly neurons Menke's disease, what we see is that all of the mitochondria in those neurons are stuck in the soma.
0: There's Mm. no way
1: for them, like when you take a picture of the image itself, all of those mitochondria are stuck in the soma and there are none in the axon, axon, which is where they're really needed um, for things like, you know, the action potential. And one of the interesting things that we find is that if we disrupt the mitophagy pathway by what's that. The mitophagy pathway is how um, damaged mitochondria are removed from cells. So, if a oh, mitochondria is
0: when it's to, dying and then yeah. it gets eaten by the auto whatever, yeah. autosome from or
1: autosome or the <laughs> lysosome too. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so
1: basically, when a mitochondria is dying, it like sends out a, a flare gun signal, um, and it's like, I'm
0: not doing take well. me out.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and these two proteins, um, Pink and Parkin, come tag that mitochondria and then it gets degraded into the lysosome or um, autophagocized out of the cell. But interestingly, what we find in our like Minky's fly model is all of these mitochondria are stuck in the soma. We're assuming a lot of them are damaged. We're doing, um, there's an undergrad in the lab right now, actually working to like figure out what kind of damage the mitochondria have. Um, But if we Take those damaged mitochondria, and we inhibit the ability of Pinker Parkin, those mitophagy pathways, uh, those mitophagy molecules, to tag the cell. We're able to get the mitochondria to move free flowingly throughout the ac- mm. throughout the okay. neuron again. And I think what's really cool about that is that it's kind of counterintuitive because you would think that having damaged mitochondria floating around a neuron.
0: It's bad. Yeah, it doesn't bad. sound good, yeah. but it but yeah. it helps. Yes, it helps it the helps, disease. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because yeah. it's some some energy or some regulation of calcium by the mitochondria is True. better than yeah. none. I guess exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: and so we're trying. We're um, a paper that I'm I'm working on now is trying really hard to tease apart how those things are connected. So how is copper damaging the mitochondria? How are the mitochondria then responding to these mitophagies and um, these mitophagy signals, and how does that somehow make it a little bit better for the neuron to survive?
0: Hmm. So there's one element that I think I'm missing in this, like connecting all the dots. So Menke's disease is some change in some gene, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're modeling it in flies, it's probably genetic. Yes. That, but, but is it a protein that interacts with copper? And that's why like the copper plays a role yeah. in it?
1: Yeah. So- okay.
0: All right. Yeah, so Menke's disease is, um, it's triggered by
1: a deficit uh, or a mutation in ATP7A, which is a copper transporter. It's how copper is like shuttled out of the cell.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. All right. All right. Now everything's connected. Now, now I'm getting it. So then that's, what have you, do you have any findings so far? Like something that you've already like, um, or, you know, preliminary findings of this project? Yeah,
1: so one of the cool things... Um, oh, I guess you
0: mentioned one. You mentioned, sorry to interrupt, Like, but you okay. did mention that when you get rid of the... When you make the cell not eat the bat mitochondria, this is helpful. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: That's one. Another one that we found um, that I think is really interesting is that we see this phenotype in both sensory and motor neurons. Um, and I think a lot of the times, especially in fly work, it's important to show that because there's such a finite number of neurons and you can look at all of them, um, for the most part, it's important to show, um, that this is sort of like a universal, it appears to be a universal mm-hmm. phenotype that can be rescued. Another big thing that we're, um, working on myself specifically with some grad students is trying to, um, really use mitochondria as a tool to understand different, um, neurodevelopmental disorders. So, uh, we had a paper published recently where we um, basically used RNA sequencing and proteomics um, like mass spec um, to show that different nuclear mitochondrial genes are in different cells. So essentially really what that means is that mm. like the diversity of mitochondria that you see across the brain or that there is diversity of mitochondria mm-hmm. depending on the cell type. That's and we can cool. Sort of catalog
0: and tag them. Yeah. Mm, yeah this could help not just the people that care about mitochondria but the people that care about cell types yeah types. yeah exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm.
1: and so that's what a lot of um a lot of my work has been trying to understand that relationship between copper and mitochondria but also just how mitochondria function because i do feel like i don't everyone just learns about them as like the powerhouse of the cell
0: mm-hmm. yeah i
1: think they're, <laughs> they're way cooler than that i remember too when i saw my first like mitochondria move video i was like what are you what are you saying
0: i was like wow my mouth was open in this in that talk i totally remember it like and i was just shocked and wanted to tell everyone (laughs) that mitochondria moved down um So where do you go from here scientifically, you know, about this project that's kind of specific to these disease and this mitochondria and copper interaction? So um, what would be like a scientific vision of like what comes next?
1: Yeah, so I'm really interested in like these sort of like big, like my big picture questions are trying to understand how neurons like develop in normal and pathological conditions, and how Mm -hmm. we can use both of those models, like normal neural development, or like typical neural development, and disease state neural development, to inform the other, um, and how we approach treatment. Um, I'm also really interested in the the cellular and molecular processes that allow for neural development to occur. And I, one of the coolest things whenever I teach a neural development class, we always, I spend like a whole lecture talking just on like the probability that all of these things go right for you that like your neural tube closes right, that you get the right neurons in the right places that like you make these connections.
0: So we're all very special because it went yeah. right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, my students definitely make fun of me um, because I, <laughs> at, by the end, I'm like almost in tears. I'm like, it's so, so powerful. Um, and then I'm also really interested in why rare genetic diseases predominantly affect the nervous system of children. Um, so why do we have these like rare neurological disorders that are also neurodevelopmental disorders? And so I'm really interested just in the the cellular and molecular biology that goes into that. And I feel like mitochondria are one of the number one organelles affected in a lot of neurologic and a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders, um, mm. but they're affected in a way and studied in a way that doesn't really shed light on what's going on. So
0: Mm -hmm. it's always just
1: kind of like, and the mitochondria are damaged as opposed to like this specific mitochondria pathway is damaged and these are the ways that we can fix it.
0: Cool, so you wanna put the mitochondria on the map of all of the people (laughs) studying neurodevelopment basically. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, thank you for sharing that. So of maybe now it's a good moment to go back to the thing we pinned before, which is like the challenge of the struggle of if you love actually doing the science, which is like data collection, yeah. data analysis. Like, um, how do you decide if being a PI is the right path for you?
1: Yeah, I think that this is a question I've I've been struggling with a lot, really, since I started my postdoc. So I started my postdoc in July 2020. Um, so for much of the the entirety, really, of the pandemic, Um, but to join Victor's lab and have that sort of like research team and research support, it was really easy to do the science and just be happy doing science, like it was a really welcoming environment, an incredibly supportive environment, Um, everyone's really nice, everyone likes each other, which in comparison to like my last few labs was not the case, Um, and so it was easy for me to see myself like doing science again, because I was like, I am good at this. And it's fun. (laughs) Um, But whenever Victor and I talk about like, what it is to be a PI and how you manage personalities and projects and all of these different things, it gets like really overwhelming. And I will say, I know that there are different sort of academic careers where like, if you're a PI at a liberal arts college mm-hmm. or, like, a primary undergrad institution, you do get the opportunity to, like, be
0: at the bench, to, like, yeah. do work and show people. Yeah, next to the uh, students, basically, next yeah. to the undergrads, yeah. Yeah,
1: um, and so for me, it's really about, like, trying to weigh all of those pros and cons because I am really good at administrative tasks as well, um, but I I really just – that's just, like, a part of my personality. I don't actually enjoy doing them, um, mm-hmm. but – I think it can be really hard when you're in your postdoc and even my, so my postdoc funding is for four years. And I feel like now the typical postdoc is like four to five years. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. Yeah. And I feel like it's different than in graduate school. Cause it's like, you're making a, a bigger decision. You're like, am I going to go like, am I going to apply to these academic jobs? Am I going to like create this really big vision for my lab and this like really mm-hmm. big plan let's say you do that and you get a job and you get there and you hate it. That's like my number one concern all the time. That's your fear. Yeah, um, definitely. And I I feel like so much of it for me has just been trying to talk to different professors, different postdocs and get their perspective and see how they feel about science, um, how they feel about their jobs. I feel like if you catch a faculty member on the wrong day, they'll tell you that this is the worst job in the world. But normally,
0: yeah, I'm curious, what part are you afraid of hating? Because you did mention that when your PI talks about the management part, that's overwhelming. Is it the people management part or is it something else?
1: I think it's in part the people management part. Um, It's also the like the I think the biggest, the scariest thing for me is like grants and learning that grantsmanship like I've been really successful in terms of fellowships, but that's very different than like an R twenty five or an r one, mm-hmm. and sort of learning how to craft your story better in that way, and how to know which know about foundation grants versus like national
0: yeah.
1: national grants like NIH or NSF. Um, and so I think for me, it's like the pressure, the non existent pressure that I have right
0: now. It's like. The pressure.
1: <laughs> you're imagining all the <laughs> yeah. pressure
0: that comes yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: that comes with like sustaining and building a lab and there are days where i'm like yeah that's fine like i could figure it out and then there are other days where i'm like or i could just run this western blot and be so happy.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i i see your dilemma uh one thing because i'm a new faculty i just started my lab in january so super fresh super fresh yeah. And one thing that I wasn't so aware that I am more aware now is that the mentoring doesn't end. I have a mentoring team. And as long as you're in a supportive environment, like, it is true, like, Writing fellowships and getting fellowships as a postdoc and a grad student, it is not the same thing yeah. as writing yeah. an R one. But there's so many people around you that have gotten R ones, and they're, they're there to see you succeed in the right environment. Of course, like some yeah. some institutions are more competitive than others. But I I purposely placed myself in a place where people were going to have the time um, and ability to help me, and I am relying on that help a lot. And it's so nice. It feels yeah. like it feels very nice to be helped. It's, yeah, yeah, a little bit like going back to grad school in the sense that you need a lot of people uh, for help, but at the same time, not because there's all these people that are like, okay, what do we do next? And like, totally trust you. And that's like, oh, okay, I better have, so you have to be really confident in your scientific ideas. Yeah. And that's yeah. something that, um, I mean, but you've been a scientist for so long. So, and then you if you have consistently, Consistent interest and knowledge of the literature of X or Y, then, then you 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 have to like be confident on it. (laughs) I think it's yeah. I think also
1: because it is the next. I'm I'm like a planner, like a a planning person, or at least you need to visualize
0: the future. You're about visualizing the future,
1: and so I I try to like picture what I would look like at, like, different kinds of institutions, um, and, like, my happiness scale, um, mm. doing those things, and I feel like it's, it's hard because my issue now is, like, the world really feels like my oyster, like, mm-hmm. everyone, I'm in such a supportive environment that everyone's, like, yeah, we'll help you, like, if you want to, like, go into industry, or if you just want to be, like, a staff scientist, like, we can help you, like, find that. jobs. That's
0: awesome, that's Like, awesome. it's so,
1: yeah, it's so great, but there are days, um, I actually just met, with um my pi went out of town but we met before he left and his um one of his big things was like yeah Kayla you can do whatever you want <laughs> just let me know what you want to do and I'll help you figure it out. And I was like, Victor, why don't I was like, I just want you to tell me what to do. And he was like, I can't. He was like, I can't do that. You know that. Um, so it was like a me, it was like me for 20 minutes being like, but what do you think? And he was like, what do you think?
0: <laughs> so it sounds like there's a lot of introspection <laughs> and self-reflection you, you have ahead of you. <laughs> yeah,
1: I feel like it's it's a cool place to be in. And I, I'm really I feel really fortunate to have that sort of mentoring environment in my postdoc because I know a lot of people don't have it and I enjoy the introspection a lot. It can be really, I don't know, it It can be like really empowering to be like, what do I want to do? Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Taking, taking charge of your own life and not doing yeah. things just because it's the default. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like this is like a good stopping point. <laughs> I didn't warn you about this, but I like ending, um, ending on a lighter note yeah uh so so maybe you can share something either like how do you when you're not in lab or how do you relax or what are your hobbies or how do you how do you have fun basically
1: i am a big um i love i love cooking um so today is thursday um and it's top chef night and so Um, My roommates and I in graduate school, actually, we would all watch Top Chef together and we would make um, like fancy dinners, like fancier than we would normally Uh make, uh (laughs) Um, but we would always make fancy dinners and eat them together and watch Top Chef. And now, since we all live in different states, um, we have a Top Chef bracket, basically, where we like pick our team to see who wins, (laughs) but then we also still... um, We'll, like, Zoom each other while we cook our fancy food um, before the show starts. And then we'll, like, watch the show on our Zoom computers or, like, on our computers together um, as kind of, like, a little reunion thing. Um, so cooking is, like, a really big thing uh, that brings me a lot of joy.
0: I am it. so impressed. These friendships <laughs> are so solid.
1: They really are. I um, I can't remember... Uh, Aaron, Dr. Erin Winsl is um, the friend that I was talking about and she defended the year before me. And so we started it like pre-pandemic, um, but it was before like Zoom was really a thing. So we would just like do it on the phone and like <laughs> talk about what we were making. Um, and then the pandemic happened and everybody got free subscriptions to Zoom. Uh, so that
0: <laughs> <good>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's a very convenient hobby. <laughs> yeah
1: i i think that's one of the things that i like the most about cooking because i'm like so it might not come out perfect but it's still edible like, i'm sure it tastes good it.
0: and you're nourishing yourself and so it's sort of like it's a and really it's, nice hobby yeah yeah,
1: it's fun i will do it on different nights i will like cook and like listen to a podcast um or like listen to rot like listen to a podcast, watch reruns of Top Chef. Um, or I'm also a really big, like, reality TV show junkie, so I'll put one of those shows on as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think cooking is a big hobby of mine. Shopping is also a big hobby of mine. Like, thrift store shopping um, and trying to find, like, cool art pieces.
0: Oh, I guess I'm- I just remember something. Something you do outside of lab is your involvement in black and neuro. So. yeah. Okay. Can you maybe maybe that would be a really nice way to end like on a positive note? Um, can you tell us a little bit about this like awesome community?
1: Yeah, um, Black and Neuro started by me and 22 other early career scientists. Um, and our mission and goal really is to like increase the visibility of Black people who are interested in neuroscience and in different fields um, to like help them build community and feel supported um while they like go through academia Mm -hmm. um and then also to just empower them to like make choices uh like to make choices that are right for them and sort of see themselves in the light of success in academia and so we do a lot of programming we have a conference we have black and neural week Um, we have a database of black neuroscientists that institutions can use to like invite speakers um, and like have panels and things like that. And it's honestly one of the I feel like it's one of the greatest things that I've ever been a part of. Um, And it kind of happened so haphazardly or serendipitously, I guess, um, just by like responding to a tweet.
0: That's awesome. That's a very positive outcome of uh, Twitter interaction. (laughs) (laughs) The the most positive outcome, probably. (laughs) Yeah. Thank Definitely. you so much for sharing that. I admire the community. I'm um, i am I'm not a black woman for those that are not seeing me, <laughs> but I can recognize the impact that the community has. And I have black trainees and I love being able to point them to it, you know, and be like, you know, here's this community. So, and, yeah. and you guys created that community. So it's just yeah. incredible. So I'm thanking you. Thank you so much for, yeah. for spending time with us to share your story, Dr. Kayla Singleton.
1: Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun.